This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Professor Mike Yuseem, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. Hey, Leadership in Action, that is us, Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Mike Husseem. I'm the director of the Center for Leadership and Change here at the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. And of course, I'm in the studio with my friend and colleague, Ann Greenhall, deputy director of the Ann and John McNulty Leadership Program, also here at Wharton. Our friend and third co-host, Jeff Klein, is off for tonight. We are now, though, um, very happy to welcome our next guest. He is a Washington Post reporter, Christian Davenport who covers the space and defense industries for the newspaper. He's also the author of a newly released book. It's great. It's called The Space Barons, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and the Quest to Colonize the Cosmos. (laughs) So, Christian, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Christian, I'm going to offer up just a couple more words about you to our listeners. You've been a staff writer at The Post since the year 2000. As I mentioned, you cover uh, space and defense and also in and around the financial desk there at the Post. You've received several um, awards for your reporting for the Post and beyond. You worked for a while, by the way, for the Philadelphia Inquirer, our hometown newspaper here. And we can hear you often on, um, well, MSNBC, CNN, PBS, NewsHour, and so on. And you've got an earlier book called As You Were to War and Back with the Black Hawk Battalion mm-hmm. of the Virginia National Guard. So, Christian, we're going to jump right into initially just your work with the Post. And in covering the the space and defense industries, uh, the last couple of years have been pretty extraordinary. Uh, What are the, I don't know, leading issues or leading concerns that you've been writing about? And what are you most concerned about reporting or anticipating coming up over the next year or two in those two industries? Well, you're right. I've been uh, uh, at the Post since 2000, and for the past five years or so, uh, really started out doing you know broad government contracting, which focuses a lot, obviously, on on defense. And uh, one of the first assignments I had uh, was a press uh, press conference. I was at the National Press Club in Washington D.C where some guy named Elon Musk wanted to assemble the press because he had some news to announce. I didn't know much about Elon Musk or SpaceX or, you know, really anything about what this press conference was about, but he ended up um, announcing filing a lawsuit against his customer or at the time who he hoped would be his customer, the Air Force, in order to do uh, national security launches, that is to launch satellites for uh, the Pentagon and the intelligence community. And that's what started me off on that road covering mm-hmm. uh, this sort of sometimes it's called the new space movement or the commercial space movement. Uh, it's a uh, entrepreneurial, innovative uh, space movement where where I, I guess the best way to define it is, you know, they're they're mm-hmm. not uh, their sole customer isn't the government. But it was in that moment where you had these two worlds overlap, space and defense. And uh, that got me started on it. And Mm. when you ask, you know, what do I see for the next couple of years? It's been a really interesting time in both those markets because the Pentagon is really interested in space and really concerned about space becoming a warfighting domain. They say it's congested, it's contested, and it's competitive. Mm. And they're concerned about the Chinese and others really, you know, you, contesting the United States' authority in space, and people don't realize how dependent we are on space, not just for our day-to-day lives, but, you know, they're crucial to the way uh, we fight wars, um, from, you know, guided munitions using GPS for key uh, communications, um, for Earth observation and intelligence and spying. Um, and there was even a proposal earlier this year in Congress to create a separate branch of the military, which would be the first time there was a newly established branch of the military set up since the Air Force was created in 1947. And this would be a branch essentially called the Space Corps. We saw Donald Trump Mm -hmm. kind of tweet about this a couple of weeks ago saying we need a Space Force. Um, So 
you know, we're seeing, uh, I think, a, the national and the federal government really looking at space as an important uh, domain uh, for warfare and for, you know, our civilian use at a time when there's this new emerging industry that sort of, you know, is up and running and has sort of taken root over the past decade or so. So you see these two uh, phenomenons sort of coinciding all at once. Christian, thank you on that. And to many listeners, it must seem very almost perplexing to appreciate now that some of the some of the launches in the space are coming out of commercial enterprise when many people who were raised in, in the era of the space program are thinking it's uh, NASA on our side and then the equivalent on the Russian side, solely responsible for anything going up that's got any size at all. Communication satellites different, but for just about everything else, this was the province of governments. What explains why the U.S. government has pulled back a bit, as we do know with the end of the, of the shuttle program itself, and then conversely, why commercial enterprise, including those led by Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, several others you document in your book, why have they come to see commercial opportunities in a terrain that, or terrain, that's the wrong phrase here, in a space that was originally solely the province of large governments? Well, you're right. And you mentioned the, the shuttle program, but I think it actually goes back even further to the end of the Apollo era. Um, you know, we saw huge advancements in space, uh, you know, in reaction to Sputnik. Um, you know, when the Soviet Union put that satellite up in 1957, which caught the United States totally by surprise, and that set off this sort of Cold War space race and led to uh, Mercury, Gemini, and then ultimately the Apollo program, uh, which landed men on the moon and, you know, had John F. Kennedy give his famous speeches about we're going to land, land men on the moon within a decade. But after that, and, and it's interesting because people talk a lot about how NASA, you know, leading up to 1969 had a huge infusion of money. It had 4% of the total budget or even more. Uh, that actually started scaling back before Apollo 11 in 1969, the first lunar landing. And there was Vietnam at the time. Nixon was in office. There was a sort of, you know, a, a retreat and needing those resources uh, for other things. And what happened was, you know, it's really interesting. They set us on a course to go to low Earth orbit, even though we had been, you know, to the moon. And people don't really, you know, the moon is 250,000 miles away. Where we go now in low Earth orbit is the International Space Station. That's only 250 miles away. I mean, it's about the distance between New York and Washington, D.C. Not to take anything away from the International Space Station, it's amazing. Uh, as an orbiting laboratory, a lot of people talk and say it's the most uh, incredible engineered object uh, ever made by um, humans. And we've been able to be living in space, have humans living in space, you know, for years on end continuously. But there were a lot of entrepreneurs who grew up, you know, in the Apollo era, as you were talking about, and saw men walk down the moon and, and thought that by now, surely there would be a, a base on the moon and we would have a permanent presence on the moon the way we do in low Earth orbit on the International Space Station, and that we would be even reaching for Mars and beyond. Um, and while NASA sent probes and robots to Mars and, in, in, you know, to the far reaches of the galaxy, we haven't uh, put humans there. And so you're seeing these entrepreneurs saying, why haven't we gone further? Why haven't we pushed mm -hmm. that frontier and wanting to do something about it? Um, not, not that they blame NASA necessarily, but NASA's budget's uh, constrained. It works within a political system, and that's Congress, and different administrations will come in and say, you know, in one administration we're going to the moon, and another one we're going to Mars, and there's sort of been a lot of back and forth. But these entrepreneurs really want us not just to have the adventure of going into space, but as you mentioned, see a business opportunity. And let's remember, these are people who come out of the tech world. This is Jeff Bezos with Amazon and Elon Musk, who, you know, was early on at PayPal and Paul Allen at Microsoft. And they see an opportunity for business with a huge condition. And this is sort of, you know, a, a, you know where the, the tension is. They need, or what they're striving for, is to lower the cost of access to space by an order of magnitude. Just make it much mm. uh, more affordable, 
more reliable. And once that can happen, they see all sorts of business opportunities in space, <clears throat> from the rapid uh, launches of uh, satellites. And now, you know, we think of satellites sometimes and we think they're the size of a garbage truck and they cost $400 million each. And, you know, they're very exquisite. But satellite technology is now at the point where you can put up not one big expensive satellite, but dozens, if not hundreds, if not thousands of smaller satellites the, the size of a shoebox that can do, you know, uh, open up all sorts of business opportunities from communication, beaming the Internet to all corners of the world, Earth observation, monitoring crops, monitoring traffic, monitoring parking flows, monitoring North Korea. Um, so they're really seeing this as the dawn of a new economic era, as well as one uh, that is an adventure in space and the air, excuse me, of Apollo. Christian, this is Anne, and it's really a pleasure to speak with you tonight. I very much appreciate the way you've walked through the chronology and helped me understand that that the entrepreneurs have really stepped in, saw an opportunity, and are really trying to run with that. But at the top of the hour, you said that space is congested, it's competitive, and it is contested. So knowing that, uh, what you know, what do you see ahead for um, our entrepreneurs in this arena? Well, and that's how the Pentagon's looking at it. And they see it as a warfighting domain and see that they have assets in space that are frankly vulnerable. Um, in terms of what these entrepreneurs see, they see, you know, uh, the Pentagon's concern and see that as a business opportunity. Uh, and okay. SpaceX mm. particularly saw that early, very early on. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, my entree into this was that news conference at the National Press Club where mm -hmm. Elon was suing because he wanted SpaceX to be able to compete against the entrenched uh, contractors who had, frankly, they had a monopoly on those launches for a decade uh, with a company called the United Launch Alliance, which was a, a joint venture between Lockheed Martin and Boeing, so obviously very big companies. And he saw a huge business opportunity saying, I can launch those satellites for far cheaper than those guys can. And he was saying this as early on as like 2005. And before SpaceX had even launched a rocket successfully, he had, Elon had sued to, uh, for entrance into that market. He sued to block uh, the joint venture that became the United Launch Alliance, the, the merger between Lockheed and Boeing for that, knowing that there was a huge business opportunity for military launch. And, you know, that required, I think, an amazing amount of foresight on his part and eventually did win and settled his lawsuit and has been now competing against the United Launch Alliance and in some case winning these very lucrative contracts, some of which are classified, some of which we know about, but can run on the order of $200, $300 million a launch. Um, so that's, you know, a huge opportunity for them. Very good. So so you see the possibility of, of cooperation between, between the entrepreneurs and government, not necessarily competition. Yes. I mean, as of right now, mm -hmm. um, because, you know, frankly, SpaceX wouldn't exist if it were not for NASA and the contracts that SpaceX has won from NASA. <clears throat> they have a contract to fly cargo to the International Space Station. Okay. That was a multi-year uh, development contract that helped them build their Falcon 9 rocket. NASA invested a lot of money in SpaceX to do those cargo delivery flights, and that was under the Bush administration. <clears throat> under the Obama administration, they sort of doubled down on that, uh, hired SpaceX along with Boeing to fly astronauts to the International Space Station. Mm -hmm. Um, people forget the United States government does not have the ability to fly astronauts from U.S. soil, and we haven't since 2011 when the space shuttle was retired. Oh. And we're now going to rely on SpaceX and Boeing to do that for us. Um, so that's a, a, a huge responsibility, and it's a huge sort of public-private partnership. Now, what SpaceX would like to do is take that. And the idea where NASA said, you know, we're going to hire you contractors. It's going to be a taxi service. We're going to hire you. You're going to fly cargo. 
you're going to fly crew, and you're going to go to the International Space Station in low Earth orbit. It's only 250 miles up. We're going to get out of that business as the government, and we're going to focus on deep space. Hmm. But it's been so successful <clears throat> that these entrepreneurs are now saying, you know what, we need a deep space public-private partnership. If we're ever <laughs> going to get to the moon, we have to do it together. It has to be the government leveraging uh, this growing industry and to do it together. So for now, what they hope to do is do it in partnership. Christian, I'm going to take a minute just to remind our listeners that this is Leadership in Action, business radio powered by the Wharton School. I'm Mike Yusim, your host, and I'm here with Ann Greenhall, my colleague. And we're talking with you, Christian Davenport, author of The Space Barons, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and the quest to colonize the cosmos. Very good. Well, Christian, so um, as you look forward on the horizon, then what do you what do you see happening? More more mm-hmm. government um, contracts coming their way in deep space as well as uh, more more locally. Well, here's the first hurdle, right? For all of the attention that SpaceX gets and that Blue Origin gets and Virgin Galactic, all these billionaires who are you know let's face it, just sort of geniuses at marketing, they get a lot of attention. (laughs) And they have had some huge successes. Yeah. What they have not done, however, is fly humans successfully on on a routine basis. So Mm -hmm. that is going to be a really huge test. So SpaceX and Boeing's first flights of a NASA crew to the International Space Station, which could be this year. Mm -hmm. Um, Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic want to do suborbital tourist flights where they take paying customers you get in their spacecraft and you fly to about 100 kilometers you don't go into orbit you just go up and then come back down but in that time you would have a few minutes few minutes where you could unbuckle your seatbelt in the spacecraft float around the cabin go to the window see the curvature of the earth see the blackness of space see the uh, thin line of the atmosphere uh and have that experience but so I think the first real big test to come mm-hmm. is flying humans. If that goes successfully, that could have huge implications okay. right? that we can now trust the commercial sector to fly people, mm-hmm. right? Because in 1903, and think about this for a minute, <laughs> the Wright brothers flew for the first time at Kitty Hawk, a powered flight. By 1955, there were more people in America flying commercially on airlines than we're taking the railroad, right? That's when that tipping Mm. point happened was 1955. Mm. So 52 years after Kitty Hawk. Now space is obviously harder. It's much more challenging. You know, it is literally rocket science. (laughs) Um, But if there's a moment where they, where the commercial sector takes over and can fly humans reliably and safely, that could really be transformative. If however, they can't and there are failures and there are accidents and there are deaths and we've seen some yeah. of these already yes then who knows what happens to this industry that's really still in its infancy well you're getting me very excited because if i add 50 years to 1969 we're talking about just about now mm-hmm. <laughs> very good mike <laughs> Christian, I'm really interested in your focus. It's in the title, and it's throughout the book, on four or five people who have led this world. So you've already mentioned Elon Musk. I mentioned Elon Musk as well, Jeff Bezos, Paul Allen of Microsoft fame, and, of course, Richard Branson. Two questions on these four individuals, but your book goes beyond them, of course, as well. What explains why they got into this business and not others from other walks of life or other individuals? Mm -hmm. And then on the affirmative side, as they, as they have built their enterprises, what have they brought to the table that's relatively distinctive that's enabled them, unlike some others who might want to get into the business, to have gotten as far as they've gotten? What do you think? Well, I think they got for, for different reasons. Um, I think Paul Allen and Jeff Bezos, you know, are of the, of the age where they grew up in the Apollo era. Paul Allen... Uh, knew all the names of the the seven Mercury astronauts, you know, John Glenn, Alan Shepard, Gus Grissom, and the like. Jeff Bezos talks and is very sincere when he was, says he was five years old and he watched uh, men walk on the moon, and that just imprinted um, something on his psyche. Um, you know, and it's interesting. We see Jeff Bezos 
through the lens of Amazon. Uh, but I really think that if you want to understand him, you know, one of these great Steve Jobsian innovators, mm-hmm. entrepreneurs of our era, you have to see him also through the lens of space and not just Amazon, because I think space is his real passion. Mm. Um, and I think that's, you know, it, it's, it's a love of space. And seeing, as I mentioned earlier, this ability to, once you can get to space much more affordably and reliably, it opens up all these avenues. Um, so what, you know, why have they had at least some initial success and why is this happening now and where others you know, didn't? You know, it's interesting because there was a man named Andy Beale who I write about in the book who is sort of like Elon Musk before Elon Musk. He's sort of a self-made uh, millionaire, billionaire, uh, had a very successful real estate career, a very successful bank career, and saw space as sort of a next opportunity in the late 1990s and started a company called Beale Aerospace. And ultimately, for a variety of reasons, it failed, and he wasn't able to break into the market um, the way that SpaceX was by taking on the United Launch Alliance uh, and and getting NASA to trust the commercial sector. But here was this guy who was self-taught, brilliant, uh, successful, and virtually every other thing he had started and failed in space. And there's sort of the old joke in space, you know, what's the best way – to, you know, the, to, to be a, become a millionaire in space, well, you start out as a billionaire. It's <laughs> <That's laughs> that difficult. And here's a case study of, like, mm. you know, it can't be done. Andy Beale can't do it. And his company folded, and I think it was 98, 99, somewhere in there. And he had a site in McGregor, Texas, Texas which was where he did his engine tests. And a couple years later, here comes this young guy named Elon Musk, and he needs, he wants to start a space company. And he needs a place to test his engines, and he takes over the exact same spot. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, well, you know, there were warning signs all over the place. As you can't do this; it can't be done. Uh, and yet he he did it, and was ultimately um, successful for, you know, a, a variety of reasons. I mean, I see it as a, it's almost a three or four legged stool. One was he, you know, took on the United Launch Alliance and you know, really had a lobbying campaign and had his lawyers out in force and was and sued his way in. <clears throat> Once he did that, he had to show technical proficiency. He had to launch a rocket. He ultimately did that. Then there was a political sea change, and you had the Obama administration come in, and that helped Elon a lot. And then the fourth leg to it is that, <clears throat> excuse me, Elon is just a brilliant <laughs> Uh, marketer and he gets all this attention and uh, you know gets all kinds of press and ultimately you know whether you love you love him or hate him and believe me a lot of people hate him he's been successful and so that he showed that this actually could be done yep so Christian I'm gonna put a couple words out there see if they they don't sum it up but they capture two vital qualities <laughs> number one the four people we've talked about in more detail here, well, not so much Richard Branson yet, but Paul Allen, Elon Musk, and Jeff Bezos, they brought a personal passion to this agenda. And in number two, just like Paul Allen, who helped get Microsoft going, and Elon Musk, who helped get Tesla going, or Jeff Bezos, who got, of course, uh, Amazon, and then Richard Branson has started oh, a couple hundred companies, they are the essential entrepreneur. Does that sound about right? Yes, and they have yes, absolutely. I think one they I don't know how much they would miss this. I think space is their real passion. I think, you know, yeah. they have a lot of interests. Um Tesla, Amazon, <clears throat> Microsoft, but I think space is one of their true passions, but it's it's, you know, it's frankly the biggest challenge of all challenges that they could face. I think they love that. It's a really, really hard problem to solve. How do you get the space efficiently and reliably? I mean, how do you do it better than the government? Mm-hmm. Nobody nobody has gotten to Mars except for government. Nobody's gotten to space reliably except for government. How do you do that? How do you find the tipping point where, just like commercial aviation, was born in sort of the 
<clears throat> World War One era and in the, in the post office era, and that was born by the government, but then ultimately got taken over by the commercial sector. How does that happen in space? And so it's a big challenge. They've got very deep pockets. I mean, Jeff Bezos has talked about putting a billion dollars a year or so. I don't think it's quite that much uh, into his company, Blue Origin, mm. but it's a huge investment. He's got, you know, we're talking about, particularly with Jeff Bezos, someone who's got, you know, let's face it, I mean, 110 or something billion dollars. He's got about the wealth of a nation and can do this and has been able to fund Blue Origin almost exclusively on his own. <clears throat> since 2000, which is an amazing thing. A lot of people today, I talk to them, and I say, oh, my book is about Elon Musk and SpaceX. Oh, yeah, I've heard about them, and Richard Branson and Virgin Galactic. Oh, yeah, I've heard about them. And then I say, yeah, and Jeff Bezos and Blue Origin. People don't even realize mm. that he has a space company. And not only that, but that he's had one since 2000. Blue Origin actually predates SpaceX by two years. Totally. Mm. Um, so <laughs> they, they've got those two pillars, I think, are key. The passion for it. And the sort of entrepreneurship, and Jeff in particular is very, very patient and will take his time. His motto, his company's motto is step by step, ferociously. Yep. And one of <laughs> those great. things is and, and, that he has for his company is slow is smooth and smooth mm. is fast. But now they're at a point where that company is starting to take off. Mm. And Christian, you've said it in, in more words than I'm going to use right now. The tougher the problem, the more these folks are drawn to it. These are huge, daunting issues. How do we get out of Earth's gravity? How do we get to Mars? Big problems, but they have not only risen to look at them, I, I think you're saying they're drawn to them. Uh, Christian, we're going to hold um, our breath right now for a couple minutes mm -hmm. while we take a break. When we come back, I'd like to take us into the next four or five years. Are these the four or five people that are going to lead this commercialization of space? Uh, what do you anticipate? So... Stick around, everybody. I'm Mike Yuseem. I'm here with Ann Greenhall. We've been talking with Christian Davenport, who is the author of The Space Barons, about the folks who are privately getting us up into orbit. Uh, right after the break, we're going to continue this dialogue. This is Sirius XM. Stay tuned. We'll have more. Welcome back. <laughs> Leadership in Action. Sirius XM's <laughs> business radio powered by the Wharton School. I wanted to hear the end of that last chord. <laughs> yeah. I'm your host, Mike Yuseem. I'm with the Leadership Center here at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, talking with Ann Greenhall with our guest this hour, Christian Davenport, author of The Space Barons, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and The Quest to Colonize the Cosmos. So welcome back. If you'd like to join our discussion, we invite you to do that. Give us a call, 844 942 7866. Oh, Christian, I have a follow-up question. Mm. Uh, before the break, you mentioned that each of the uh, entrepreneurs, each of the men that we're talking about, have a real passion for space, but they also have deep pockets. So I'm just curious, and you may, you may or may not know, what percentage of their enterprises are being funded out of their own personal accounts? Well, uh, we know for Jeff Bezos, he said that he uh, sells a billion dollars a year of Amazon stock, and that goes directly into Blue Origin. Hmm. I don't think it's, you know, that Blue Origin's budget is a billion dollars a year out of Jeff's pocket, but right. it's somewhere in that ballpark. Uh, Elon Musk uh, took $100 million of his own money early on and founded SpaceX with it. That was enough to buy... Uh, to develop a, a single-engine rocket called mm -hmm. the Falcon 1. Mm -hmm. And they had three failed attempts to get to orbit with that rocket. Mm -hmm. And he was essentially out of money, but they turned it around and did a fourth launch. And uh, I believe that was in mm -hmm. 2008. And they were successful. Yeah. And, uh, and thus SpaceX was born because afterwards they got a big NASA contract that sort of kept, kept them afloat. We don't, I think uh, Richard Branson has said somewhere along the lines of $500 million of his own money into Virgin Galactic. I would have to think that by this point, it's more than that. And uh, Paul Allen, the sort of most secretive um, and reclusive of the bunch, we don't know mm -hmm. what he's building. Um, a, a huge plane called Strata Launch, which would be the biggest 
plane by wig- wingspan ever to fly when it flies. It mm. could be this year. Uh, even bigger than Howard Hughes's uh, famous Bruce Goose. <laughs> this yeah. is the plane that would, uh, it's so big, the idea is to take a rocket and tether it to the belly of the plane. It's so big, in fact, you could put three rockets under there. The plane goes up to cruising altitude, 35,000, 40,000 feet. The rocket drops lights its engines and goes on to space. So we don't know how much uh, of their money they put into it, but clearly, you know, this is not, this is something mm. that only billionaires could do. Mm. Very good. Mike, do you have a follow-up to that? <laughs> yeah, Christian, with the huge personal commitments these four individuals and others have made, and they're right out of the entrepreneur's playbook here. So they've taken a chance you well know, we all know, that entrepreneurs often live on their family credit card for four or five months. Um, and I think investors also are a little bit wary of an entrepreneur who does not have his or her skin in the game. So they've got a lot of skin in the game. Mm-hmm. And I say that by way of saying that uh, the sunk investment here is pretty large. And thus, as we then turn to the next five years, just to make a forecast but to turn it over to you, these four people and others that are in your book are probably going to be uh, in your writing for the next four or five years as we move beyond the space station, maybe put people now into orbit, maybe even get somebody to Mars. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting time in space. Um, from the economic standpoint, yes, they put in their own money in. It's a time. SpaceX is a viable company. It has commercial customers. It launches satellites for commercial companies. It launches, uh, does launches for NASA, launching crew and eventually cargo to the International Space Station. It does national security launches. Uh, Blue Origin is now building a vehicle uh, that would fly tourism, that would uh, fly tourists to space. Richard Branson is charging, I think it's $250,000 a flight for that same experience. Um, <clears throat> but all of that is leading toward, you know, bigger and better things, they hope. Mm-hmm. And that is attracting more and more investment from venture capitalists. It used mm-hmm. to just be people who are passionate about space who would invest in these companies and was seen as a very, very risky investment. Um, but we've seen in the last really four years or so, some big investments coming in. Um, uh, SpaceX got a billion dollars from uh, Fidelity and Google. Hmm. Um, uh, There's a big investment into Virgin Galactic as well. Jeff Bezos has his own personal investment, if you count the amount of money he's personally invested into this. But it's, it's moving slowly but steadily from passion, you know, space, mm-hmm. space geeks who really love this so people really want to make money in space and, and, and are starting to maybe think that this could be a viable business enterprise. I mean, the idea is for that to happen, it can't just be having the government as a customer. It's got to be independent from the government that there's a self-sustaining economy in space. And whether that happens, I mean, remains to be seen. And the next few years are, are really going to be crucial in, in to seeing how that plays out. Uh Christian, one of the elements of, or one of the arguments we make in the classroom here is the importance of barriers to entry. So you've got a company, you're in a given market selling shoes or whatever it is. If others see your success and there aren't significant costs to getting into your your enterprise or into your market, guess what's going to happen? You're going to have a lot of competitors out there pretty quickly, and they might even have a better product, and they can sell it less than you. But it feels to me here this is the extreme of barriers to entry. If you don't have, let's make it a half billion dollars of your own cash uh, and some really good uh, engineers working for you, you just can't get into this business. What do you think? You get right. And the, the, yeah, the, and they talk about that. The barriers are entry, to entry mm-hmm. are so extremely high. And what Jeff yeah. talks about, Jeff Bezos talks about when he started Amazon, uh, you know, there all of the all, all of the instruments were in place. Right, the phone companies had laid down all of the lines needed for the internet. The internet was in place. People had computers. There was a, a, the post office could deliver the books that he wanted to sell. There was a way he could take people's money. It was known as the credit card. That was all there, so that some kid 
in a dorm room to start an internet company, and many did, and very did very well. And it was there wasn't that barrier to entry, but mm-hmm. now the barrier to entry is so high. And so what these guys, these space barons, want to do is lower that barrier to entry to get more people in so that there can be this dynamism in space, mm-hmm. this economic dynamism flourish in space. And you're already starting to see it. So what we're talking about here today, these space barons, they're the launch providers. They're the transportation. They're like they're the post office in the Amazon. They're just getting your stuff into space. But you're seeing also an explosion in uh, satellite technology where the satellites are getting smaller. They're becoming more robust, more proficient, more capable. Earth's observation, communications, um, the things you can do in, uh, in using satellites is, is continuing to grow. We have the International Space Station which is amazing, but right now it's really the only place we can go in space. You're seeing private companies like Bigelow Aerospace, uh, founded by Robert Bigelow uh, of Budget Suites in America, wanting to build budget suites in space. (laughs) He's got a space habitat company, (laughs) and that he wants to build uh, habitats that uh, can cram into the fairing of the nose cone of a rocket, and instead of being made of, you know, metal, these stations are made of like a, a Kevlar-like material, and then they blow up or expand in space. So they, <laughs> they're sort of these modules that once they get to space, they sort of you know, blow up like a balloon um, that would create habitats, and then you can put several of them, of them up. So <clears throat> we're starting to sort of see this path happen. Uh, it's, it's not there yet. The government is still the main customer. It's not a standalone, self-sustaining economy. You know, but these guys are trying to make that happen. Now, Christian, then do you see these space barons as uh, collegial or competitors? Um, they're competitors. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I focus on a lot of the tension, particularly in, in the book between Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. They had a sort of my rocket's bigger than your rocket. My <laughs> company can do more than your company. A little spat on Twitter. Um <laughs> over one of the key technologies here, which we haven't talked much about, which is the, the ability to reuse rockets. Mm. Um, I'll just talk really quickly about that. The way rockets work is there's a first stage, and that's really where all your money is. That's where all the big engines are. It's usually called the booster. It boosts the the rocket into space, and then usually there's a second stage that takes it to orbit. The booster gets ditched into the ocean never to be used again. And both Elon and Jeff looked at that and said, that's crazy. You're throwing away a rocket. It's like taking a flight from New York to LA and throwing away the airplane. Right, how, right. How, how expensive would commercial airline travel? And they sort of went back and forth over that and who did it first and whose landing was better because, because now they're landing their rocket successfully and almost making it look routine. And again, this is a technology, this is a feat that that the government had never done and frankly a lot of people thought was impossible and yet here these entrepreneurs did it and did it successfully and now it's almost routine, it's like boring. It's not even <laughs> um, but they know, they're competitors and they've dialed it back since then because it made a lot of headlines and you know the media grabbed onto it and they dialed it back. But they know that they need competition. Right. Competition is what got us to the moon. It was a Cold War race with the Soviet Union that, that had us land men on the moon. Every great business venture. And they know it just from their own experience. Right. Amazon taking on Walmart mm-hmm. and Barnes and Noble and Tesla taking on, well, all of Detroit. And, you know, they they know what it's like to compete. And when I interviewed Elon for the book, he said and I asked him about this. He said, if I had a button and I could press it and it would make Jeff Bezos and Blue Origin go away, I would not press that button (laughs) because he knows that Mm -hmm. Jeff Bezos and Blue Origin, once they get their big rocket up and running that will really compete against SpaceX, that will only make them better, more efficient. You know, they have to be safer and reliable and better and cheaper than the next guy. And that's Mm -hmm. the only way there's going to be an advancement in space Mm. It's because it's so hard. And if it's going to work, if there are monopolies and big government programs that are funded, you know, for congressional mm-hmm. districts and one administration to the next changing things, we haven't gone anywhere. And we haven't gone any, you know, I mean, anywhere out of low Earth orbit since the Apollo era. Mm-hmm. And these guys know that if there's an innovative approach that 
is on sound economic principle, and that makes sense, and there is a self-sustaining economy, and there are more people in it, more companies, more entrepreneurs pushing each other, it's only going to push us further. Hmm. And you know, it just makes economic and business sense. Christian, I'm going to remind listeners, this is Leadership in Action. I'm Mike Husseem. I'm here with Ann Greenhall. And we're talking with Christian Davenport, a Washington Post reporter and author of the book we're focused on, The Space Barons. And Christian, just to pick up on that and connect it with a certain amount of uh, research interpretation of the same phenomenon, academics for quite some time now have noticed that as markets develop in their early stages, more competitors is actually better than fewer competitors for reasons you've already touched on in, in the space area. More competitors, there are going to be more companies that want to buy their services, uh, that sort of thing. They learn from each other. In late developing markets, then a lot of competitors can actually be bad news, but we're not at that stage uh, quite yet. Uh, but, Christian, with our remaining time here, I'm going to take us back to a statement you made, and it's in your book, too, that one reason that Jeff Bezos is doing Blue Origins right now is that he did watch, as much of America did watch on a very fateful night, Neil Armstrong step out of the uh, lunar module there and make his famous statement about one step for him and a gigantic step for mankind. And with that, to turn this now on you, you've thought about these folks, you've written about these folks, if they give you a seat on one of their <laughs> rockets, are you going with them into space? Well, when I met with uh, with uh, Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson, because they're doing the suborbital uh, tourism flight uh, and would sell seats on their rockets to just go up and you know float around the cabin, I uh, I had done a little research where I had <laughs> gone into the NASA archives. And I had gotten, people forget this, but there was the teacher in space program for the yeah. shuttle era. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, Krista McAuliffe uh, lost her life in the uh, uh, Challenger disaster in 1986 when the Challenger exploded. But as a follow-on to that, NASA had been planning to do a journalist in space. Oh, so oh wow. I went wow. to the archives and got the application for that. <laughs> and, and when I met with Richard and when I met with Jeff, I... I pushed it across the table and said, you know, if you really do want to democratize space and open it up to the masses, <laughs> you need to have a journalist up there to write about it. <laughs> That's and, so great. Uh, awesome. know, so that was my, I used that opportunity as, as my pitch to, to go. So <laughs> we'll see. We'll, uh, and did they hold on to the, those applications? I hope so. <laughs> I, if not, I'll remind them. Very good. So, Christian, uh, I might have just uh, one follow-up. I'm, I'm, and I'm really asking. This could be a very naive question, but am I really myopic? Am I thinking that we, the United States, are the ones who have uh, a monopoly on space barons? Are there other countries who are who are uh, exploring in similar ways? In terms of it being it, no, in a lot of ways, this is a, like a very American story. You know, could only happen in America, where you have someone who's <laughs> either he's as nuts or dumb, or as brilliant as Elon Musk, who you know, by the way, is a South African immigrant. But only could he do this in America, where he says, "You know what? I'm going to try to start a space company. I have no experience in space, no experience <laughs> in aerospace. I have you know, most of my money from you know doing an online." A payment system called PayPal, but I think space is a good business opportunity. I'm going to do that, and I'm going to be successful. It, I mean, it's a quintessential American, mm. you know, success story. And I think what Jeff Bezos would like is to have this be like Amazon Part Two, like you know, Amazon 2.0 is <laughs> Blue Origin. And and uh, you know, again, it's 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 just you know where where they're working with the government, but also uh, resting this monopoly, you know, from the hands of government and, mm -hmm. you know, and, and saying we need to commercialize space, we need to make it a business opportunity uh, and do it better. So I think it's, it's really, you know, just an American story. Do you think the government sees the space barons as uh, a strategic advantage? I think some do and I think some don't. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there's you know, a lot of people at NASA and in the White House now and in 
the Obama administration and to some extent in the Bush administration who really want to see this as this industry grow. I think on the other hand, there are a lot of old guard folks at NASA who say this is what we do uh, and we've been doing it for decades and we have the experience and are very concerned about mm-hmm. companies like SpaceX now uh, being handed the grave responsibility of flying astronauts into space. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, nobody knows the tragedy of failure better than NASA having two shuttles mm-hmm. blow up, uh, you know, with Challenger in 86 and Columbia in 2003 and the loss of 14 uh, lives in those two accidents. Mm-hmm. Um, so nobody knows. They know how risky it is. They know how much is at stake and how hard it is and how challenging it is and are concerned that a company like SpaceX is going to be taking that over and can they be trusted with it. Um, so I think there's a real tension there. Yeah, thank you. Christian, we got 60 seconds to go and to move us quickly out to the year 2023, five <laughs> years out. What, what do you think is going to be happening in that year knowing what's happening right now? Oh, boy. 2023. So... We sh- I'll take the optimistic view. Oh, good. Orbital <laughs> tourism flights, uh, orbital flights, not just from uh, SpaceX and uh, Boeing to the International Space Station, but to some commercial habitats in space like Bigelow. We'll also see uh, a boom in space manufacturing. There are companies like mm-hmm. Made in Space that are 3D printing objects in space. <laughs> so you're going to see a manufacturing taking space so you don't have to lift everything up off the Earth's surface. But then once you get up there, you can start making rocket engines, habitats, mm. and doing that all while you're in orbit uh, up above. Kristen, mm. sounds exciting. Uh, save us a seat on the rocket yeah. that you do take up there. Exactly. We're, we're, we're going with you. <laughs> and thanks, uh, in any case, more short term here for joining us tonight. We are very appreciative. Thank you so much for having me. All right, Anne, that was uh, oh, really, great. really interesting. And uh, as our many of our listeners know, we do a bit of a, a debrief right now, yeah. trying to pull a few threads out that we oh, really want to hang on to. Why don't you start with our first guest, Howard Brownstein, who does restructuring and thinks a lot about corporate governance. What have you got from Howard? Well, I well Howard was a wonderful guest and uh, had many pithy sayings, but the one that I'm going to take with me is that Uh, Boards should keep their noses in and their fingers out Mm -hmm. of companies that they are um, they're guiding or restructuring. Excellent. I've got a couple points as well. (laughs) Uh, Number one, beware of denial. Oh, very important. Get out, get get out in front of your problem and identify it. Don't let it push you off a cliff. Number two. There is such a thing as a CRO, a chief restructuring officer. And number three. Remind yourself to act reasonably, even if the world seems kind of unreasonable. (laughs) Very good. (laughs) Easier said than done, but I just said it. I hope I can live up to it. Okay. Christian Davenport of The Washington Post and author of The Space Barons. Oh, boy. Well, so much here. I guess um, what strikes me is the opportunity that The Space Barons saw when the government began to pull back from space exploration and just you know that entrepreneurial spirit that passion but also we have to add uh, deep pockets that may that have made these uh, attempts possible yeah let's uh, stay on that for a second more i was really i think impressed near the end as he reflected on why this was a quintessentially american story we've mm-hmm. got people with deep pockets we've got private equity with also a lot of cash mm-hmm. And I suppose there's also just a little bit of a spirit in the air. Why not tackle problems that are harder and not easier? Yeah. And uh, this seems to be uh, a world, or maybe it's a culture, or it's the kind of water we swim in that makes it easier to take on what are seemingly extremely difficult engineering problems to solve. So difficult, right. NASA, that's been at this for 25 years, thought they just couldn't be solved. Yeah, absolutely, Mike. Yeah, I. Um, it's... I also appreciated sort of the historical context and uh, the way that Christian just gave us a clear picture of how the Defense Department sees, or the Pentagon sees, uh, space as an opportunity for war. It's congested, it is contested, and it is highly competitive. 
And against that backdrop, we have entrepreneurs who are seeing, who are drawn to it as a passion, and see the chance for uh, commercial commercial enterprise in space. Yep, yep. And in that sense, we're talking here about startups, about business, about uh, consumers. We're also talking about national policy, foreign policy, and military policy, all at once. So I was riveted. Let me ask a more personal question, Anne. Oh, okay, Mike, I'm ready. <laughs> the seat next to me on my oh, rocket boy. Uh, is, uh, right now it's empty and there's a seat belt yet to be snapped, so you come with me? Oh, my gosh, Mike, that would take an enormous amount of courage. Um, I I would like to. Okay, very, very good answer. I would like to. Yeah. I honestly would like to, but whether or not I would have the courage might remain to be seen. All right, Anne. That, I, yeah, gonna, how about you, Mike? No, I'm, I'm signed up. <laughs> to the chagrin of my family, but I'm I'm signed up. But let me just make yeah. it very immediate. And I've okay. got, I just went on Amazon.com and I bought a seat for two hundred and fifty thousand <laughs> on one of Richard Branson's Sea uh, Space. Uh, it's extra. I actually bought two, and I got a, got them for the price of one. So you come with me. Oh, Mike, <laughs> I might have to step back and let someone else go first. All right. <laughs> Jeff Klein wants to go. Uh, 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 very good. <laughs> So, uh, and I think uh, that's pretty much a, a wrap on the program uh, with, yeah. a, with about 60 more seconds to go. From both of our commentators tonight, great guests they were. What's, yeah. a, what's a well, theme that transects or okay, crosses over? Okay, I can over do them? that, Mike, because the, our first, our first uh, guest really spoke about um, risk and being highly prudent. Do you have cash in, and is that cash in mash, matching the cash yeah. out? Managing risk, and here our second guest, uh, they also are managing risk, and on the surface of it, taking much bigger risks, yep. but they are calculated risks. And the biggest one on the horizon is really uh, bringing men and women into space. Yeah, and we are not yet there, but that is really the it's, risk um, ahead of us. It's coming, and a similar parallel theme for me is that Howard Brownstein, the, the turnaround person, said that the biggest enemy of uh, keeping a company growing and successful is denial of challenges, right? solving problems. Mm -hmm. Find out what your problems are, you can solve them. And I think from our Christian Davenport, this is, doesn't this define uh, people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk Huge engineering problems. Mm -hmm. They didn't shrink from them. They solved them. Right, and the competition actually keeps them sharper. So not less, but more. <laughs> All right, Ann, thank you for that. I uh, want to thank our guests for uh, yes. joining us tonight, uh, listeners as well. If you want to uh, let us know something about uh, what you've heard today or have got a question, you can reach us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can follow us on Twitter at bizradio111. Once again, Thanks to our guests, of course, Howard Brownstein and Christian Davenport. Want to thank our producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Tatiana Zamis. I am Mike Hussein, and you've been listening to Leadership in Action in collaboration here with my good friend, Ann Greenhall, on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 111. Come back next week, everybody. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 